Tonight on the show, we talk Los Angeles disappointing people and the feel-good hit of 1987, Less Than Zero. My guest tonight is Nick. This is Manic Movie Monday. For the touch of your lips, dear But much more for the touch of your whips, dear You can raise welts like nobody else As we dance to the masochism tango My guest tonight is Nick. We are going to talk about Less Than Zero. I don't think I've ever been this excited to talk about a movie that is so fucking dark. It is a dark movie indeed. It is a dark movie indeed. But when I when I first saw it, it was it was like a movie where for a brief moment you were like, oh dude, doing blow is cool. Okay. So I'm glad that I am not the only one who saw this probably when they weren't supposed to be seeing this and immediately thought, I am going to grow up, do cocaine, and move to Los Angeles. Yeah, no, it has. No, no, I know. And and it's a movie that like had played like a, it's sort of like a weird place in my life. Because I remember when I saw, I think it came out in 1987, mm-hmm. if I'm correct. Yes. So I would have been, I'm not going to, I'll just say, because I don't want to age myself for your listeners. Let's say I was like eight or nine ish. I remember like what I remember from the first time I saw it was like the incredibly graphic French kissing scene between <sighs> Jamie Gertz and Andrew McCarthy. That's on my that's on my list of things I liked about this movie. Like, it's so funny that you said that because I have obviously we have the the structure of the show or whatever. But like when I get to the whole scene, all the stuff I loved, it's one of the. (laughs) Oh, this is cool. Listen, you can just got you just direct me, you know, I mean, I am a professional screenwriter, so I'm used to people telling me what they want me to do. Oh, my God. One one rung below an actor. But like, yeah, the truth is, it's like just veer me whatever way. But when I first saw this movie, that was that was the thing. It stuck in my head and then I saw it and I didn't see it again for many a long time I don't probably 10 years later almost when I was a you know in high school and I grew up in New York City and 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 uh, you know in Los Angeles was like a a distant strange place which is odd now that I've you know make LA I've made my LA my home for almost two decades so it was a week and I, and I and I and it wasn't you know and again it was like the 90s in New York it was Giuliani was you know slaughtering black people you know threatening all of us with quality of life. And I saw, and, but there was a lot of cocaine in New York at that time, particularly in high school. So when I saw this movie again, years later, I felt like I really vibed with it. Ooh, wow. Wow. Uh, all right. So, so for our listeners or for anyone that's uninitiated and hasn't actually seen this movie and has no idea what it's about, <laughs> I will give you guys the plot summary or the plot summary I came up with because the plot summary online is bullshit, by the way. But the one I came up with is Clay comes home from college to find his ex-girlfriend Blair, now a coke-addicted model, and his best friend Julian, now a, I want to say between crack and rock cocaine addicted because it's there are hard people. to tell hard to tell and he's also like ha- he's also he's homeless. homeless yes yeah, i put homeless. i put indebted to a drug dealer named rip and basically homeless <laughs> so, right right so um, and yeah that, that played was, by robert De- played by robert downey jr robert I, know downey jr. A, I know you have a behind the scenes section which i'm sure we'll get deep <laughs> into that part of of it but yeah that's a very important point that the that the cocaine crack addicted homeless guy in this movie is played by Robert Downey Jr. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. So like we'll go through the cast, which is actually very, it's not as big as you would think, but we got some major, major heavy hitters. So obviously RDJ, Robert Downey Jr., who plays Julian, went on to do Chaplin, Tough Turf, Iron Man, and the LAPD for a while. He has actually been sober for 19 years now. Shout that out, RDJ. Shout out. Did get into a lot of trouble with drugs and alcohol. And he has referred to this movie as the ghost of Christmas future. Because at the time, Uh-oh. he was not the prolific drug addict that he became. He was just a dabbler and a partier on the weekends kind of a guy. And it just after that movie, he said personally that it just exploded and took off and then next we have james spader as rip the sleaziest drug dealer ever who also went on to tough turf which is one of my favorite movies jack's back pretty in pink boston legal and then most recently the blacklist andrew mccarthy as clay obviously pretty in pink mannequin then he became a travel writer for national geographic and now is an author and has written several books. Then Jamie Gertz as Blair, Lost Boys, Quicksilver, Solar Babies, because you can't forget Solar Babies. Now he, she's actually the board director for the Melanoma Research Alliance. She's actually doing, she's doing- And I feel like her husband owns a professional sports team. I believe that is a true statement, yes. I think, so. yeah, I think she does. He owns, I think, I think so. We got Michael Bowen as Bill, mostly noted for Valley Girl, Lost, Breaking Bad, and of course, Kill Bill, but like myself, is actually a pornography history buff. Oh, right. And also, just a quick thing about Michael Bowen. And he he's the bad guy in Pulp Fiction. He drives the pussy wagon, the yellow car. And he also he was also one of the neo-Nazis in Breaking Bad. He was like the leader who actually I'm pretty sure, you know, spoiler alert. I think he's the guy who murdered. He murdered uh, Dean Norris in Breaking Bad. Oh, my goodness. Like, where, he's like, where are you going, Jack Rabbit? And then he kills. <laughs> he's a good he's a Michael Bob, big fan. He's a good old school like dirty la character actor awesome 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 character actor yeah totally and then uh, rounding out the cast as we have several people who are just kind of in there like obviously brad pitt this is his first movie so he's sort of in like two scenes you can kind of see him he doesn't say anything he's just there you know he's watching himself on the tv monitors at one point and then he's playing around at one of the parties one of the many parties in this movie (laughs) yeah seriously it's nuts. But yeah, rounding out the cast, we have Nicholas Pryor as Julian Wells's dad. And he was also the dad in Risky Business. That's and right. he was in The Omen Part 2. But I know him from Airplane as Jim never has a second cup of coffee at home. <laughs> yeah. As that guy. And but like, I guess most recently he was in Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Oh, wow. So, yeah. yeah. So what? Okay. So what is your so your background with this is that you saw it? Do you remember how old you were when you first saw it? Like you were nine or 10? I guess I was like nine or 10. I was nine or 10. I saw it in 1987. And like I was saying, I could blew my mind because it was like, yeah, you know, again, I remember nine or 10, I was like French kissing. It was a big deal. And later on in high school, I saw it and it was like a part you know it was a funny party movie i mean it was one of these like but it was also like kind of like a warning like this ghost of christmas future movie i mean in later years i mean the funny thing about like i mean like i went on like a a deep dive of brett easton ellis the the novelist whose novel the movie is based on 
And I remember reading the novel Lesson Zero, which had a great, great cover. And it's got one of the best opening sentences of a book. It says, people in LA don't know how to merge, which is true, which is a very true statement. They don't know how to merge on the freeways. It's some like that's a that's not a direct quote, but it's set, it's sort of like that. The book is nothing like the movie. The, nope. the book is like dark and nasty, like most of his stuff. And no one, there's nothing redeemable about anything. And then you see the movie, which is clearly like a Reagan era, don't do drugs, no, no, no. But a movie still sticks with me mostly because it's got one of the best most haunting Thomas Newman scores recorded. And like Thomas Newman is like, you know, and it's actually come back. Like you can find it because Thomas Newman, Mm -hmm. best composer, you you probably right. Listeners probably right. Know him from like Finding Nemo and Road to Perdition and American Beauty. But he had this like slew of great scores in the eighties, starting with Real Genius. Yes, Real Genius. Oh my God, I love you yeah. so much. Oh, see, yeah, yeah, he get did, it. He did Real Genius, and then he did The Man with One Red Shoe. These are great scores because as a yes. writer, I cannot write anything without music. Desperately Seeking and Susan. Desperately Seeking Susan is another one. I'm actually using Desperately Seeking Susan now. You can't get a lot of it. You can't get the, by the way, the Real Genius score, you can't get it anywhere. I know. But, uh, but the Less Than Zero score is like really come back and it's a great score. In fact, yep. that's one of those times where like you can see as a, as a film buff, like sometimes the score enhances, like what is, what is like, like a very high, like very well budgeted after school special movie. <laughs> you sort of think to yourself like, whoa, like, but then you're like, okay, the plot's ridiculous. Like, you know, Andrew McCarthy, the funny thing about Andrew McCarthy in this movie is you can tell he was like going deep on this one. Cause his first shot of him, he's got no pants on <laughs> full shot of his bear he's, behind. He is, he's shirt cocking. He's straight yeah. shirtcocking before shirtcocking was a thing. Big time. And you're like, okay. So McCarthy read this and was like, all right, I like this. I like this because I'm going to get to go hard R and I'm like the nice guy and St. Elmo's Fire. And yeah, I get to make out with Jamie Kurtz, who's like at the height of her hotness and her mm-hmm. greatness. Several times in this movie. I mean, there's a you lot of I mean? stuff yeah. in this movie. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And both of them are totally eclipsed by the genius of Robert Downey Jr. I mean, absolutely. Like, he acts circles around them. Yeah, and Spader too. I mean, this is really, funny. yeah, th- this is really RDJ's and Spader's movie. Well, obviously, because they're the two of the of the four leads of the movie. They're the two that are still working today. Yeah, I mean, in substantial. I mean, substantially. working substantially again. It's like a plebe in the fucking spoke of Hollywood. I mean, you know, longevity is really like I think, particularly as an actor, that's always you know you're really great. And both of them are really great, but Downey Jr. is just fantastic in this movie. He said that this is actually the very first movie where he felt like he was validated as a performer during the scene where he goes to talk to his father to the second time to ask him for to to basically stay at home. He wants to stay at home for a few nights because he's sober, wants to kind of get his shit together before he was about to do that scene. The director, Mary Kanievska, came up to him and and actually told the set, they were like, look, you need to come and watch this because this is going to be special and kind of gave him this extra confidence that he needed to do this scene. And it's an absolutely gut-wrenching, heartbreaking scene. It you is, know. it is, and yeah, and it is. And it's also interesting that you bring up Marek Kavinetska because I don't think he ever made another movie after this, or certainly no. not. In the no, he like he was hired off of 
a a film that he did that was very critically acclaimed and they liked that and they wanted someone who was going to come in and make this story seem more like empathy inducing they wanted they wanted him because apparently he had a habit in his movie whatever the one was that was so popular of making sympathetic characters out of people that were basically scumbags again you know the interesting thing about that director too is he clearly had such an impact on downey jr because i feel like it was only a few years ago Downey Jr. got his name right better than you and I did, definitely. <laughs> did it on like the David Letterman show on Netflix. Like my guest needs no introduction. Right. And Downey Jr. definitely like referenced him. But you also like, the movie's very empathetic. In fact, I think that's why I actually went back to it because I, I had forgotten about, again, I saw it when I was eight or nine and it was like way, way over my head, totally inappropriate. <laughs> and I went back to it because before, because when I was a teenager in high school in New York, I did what, that was when I was reading Brett Easton Ellis books. Cause it was like, nihilistic dark. right it was the cool thing to do in high school yeah, yeah just be it like was. that creepy and the and i remember reading the book less than zero and being like a stunned by like the just how awful particularly the andrew mccarthy character is. oh absolutely yeah and robert Downey jr's character is barely in the movie by the no way. i mean no. the book i'm sorry in the book yeah he he's in here he's he comes here and there throwaway character and james spader's character of rip is actually like an amalgam of of a couple of different people in the book right um, right but and, the shocking and, thing well, yeah but the yeah. shocking thing from the book was like the Andrew, and so i went that's why i went back to watch the movie and then the movie is incredibly empathetic because like every scene in the movie is robert downey jr being wasted and getting more wasted in some very like by the way like again i've lived in la for a long time like nightclubs in la have never looked like that i mean maybe they did in the 80s and also like la is not like la's nightlife maybe because i'm jaded and from new york was never that much fun like i was in, but i was like I, I celebrated my 25th birthday in la i've been in la for a long fucking time i'm just realizing this while we're doing this interview i just am like i like night 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 the night scene in la was has never been as awesome as it is in lesson zero so that's another, that's another great question I had for you, because when I lived in Los Angeles for the brief six month period until the writer strike pretty much ended that all, all I could really think about was the streets smell like urine and there's great vegan restaurants and oh, look, Trader Joe's, I've never been there before, which now it's Trader Joe's everywhere. But at the time, like the nightlife, the, the, the image that I had of my head of what I wanted to experience when I got to LA was like gone, like did not exist. There was no, the, the, the nightlife that you're describing the, the 1987 no. was just, no. no, it didn't exist anymore. Yeah. Like maybe once or twice, once or twice I tasted it. Like at a few bars, like there was a couple, couple clubs like uh, 2005, maybe 2006. I don't know. I remember I went to a couple of parties. The one thing, if I can say that's very true about those nightclubs in, in less than zero is, is that, and this is, I think very true of Los Angeles as a city. I mean, LA has just gotten worse and LA is an ugly city. I mean, it's just an ugly city, a great city. Don't, I'm not, I'm not disparaging it. I live here for heaven's sakes. I, I, not an attractive city. No, it's like when you sell like billboards and yeah fast food shines and it's right. dirty and there's cars and it's gotten worse i mean there's a significant homeless problem but the thing that lesson zero kind of gets right is is that like there is like there's like there are places in la that you'll drive to and the and it's like they don't know what they don't know what's going on in real la like at all <laughs> they're living they're in, in their own in a different world they're gonna vote world. for rick, they're gonna vote for rick caruso for mayor the guy who owns the the gaudy grove and they're concerned about <laughs> 
I don't know what they're concerned about because they don't know what's really going on because they come <laughs> down. They don't even think they have to go to Trader Joe's anymore. They'll send somebody down to get their right? groceries. And maybe that's what, and I guess maybe that's why I never found the less than zero clubs that I was looking for because I wouldn't, wouldn't have been let, let in. So uh, my experience with this movie, I got the soundtrack when I was seven. So in 1987, when the soundtrack was released, I got it because I was obsessed with hazy shade of winter i thought like that was the greatest song ever and i mean i'm seven years old so of course so i get this soundtrack and i get this cassette and i am mesmerized by this cover i'm mesmerized by this like pool image of andrew mccarthy walking and and jamie gertz silhouetted and and everything and i and i'm just super into it had no idea what that movie was about. I just knew I really love this cover and I love this soundtrack. Right, Fast right. forward into high school. I'm 16 years old. Decide to rent, I decide to rent it and I just fall in love. I fall in love with everything in it. And I remember watching it and it was my ghost of Christmas future. It was, it was because for me watching it in that, at that age, I completely glossed over that ending, by the way, which spoiler alert, we're going to talk about, but like literally all I saw was neon Malibu drugs, sex, music lights. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, I, yeah, it's true. And I, and I feel like that soundtrack was like one of the first movie soundtracks. I think it was produced by Rick Rubin. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that was like one of those first, like, cause I feel like the movie didn't do very well at the box office, but the nope. soundtrack did really well. No, it, it really didn't. And the critics hated it very much. And you had, you, you also had this school of people that not only were they mad because someone had taken their precious book that they loved and take and and basically like whitewashed it in a way that yeah, it no, was there's, they're, they're just complete. There's no unrecognizable. There's no, no, nothing <laughs> yeah. except the names. Only the names stayed. The Only same. the names. That's it. Literally, and that it was in L.A. Yeah. I've, I've always said about this movie, I said this, the reason one of this, this movie is one of my favorite movies is that I consider it to be a near perfect film as long oh. as you completely disregard the source material. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, I hated the source. I hated the source material. You know what I mean? Like I, like I'd find myself going back. I mean, I, spoiler alert in preparation for this podcast, I did not go back and rewatch less than zero. Everything is from memory, but like I would go back to the movie. If somebody was like, you have a choice, go back, you know, you can you have to read the book or go, or back, go back to, the, to movie. the movie. I'd always go back to the movie. There's no way I'd ever read that book again. I'm far less, I'm far less, enamored of like the nihilism and the and the darkness that uh, Brett Easton Ellis like thinks is cool I mean the thing is I think that at the time in 1987 middle America was not ready for like a, a sort of like no aloof bisexual male protagonist <laughs> they were like nope we've got to get Andrew McCarthy in there yeah, by the way, this is not a this is not a ding on Brady Brett Easton Ellis as a writer. No. I, I I like I like some of his other books far more than I liked Less Than Zero. I thought American Psycho, I think, is a is a masterpiece. It's of, brilliant. Of it is brilliant satire. And I think that's that that's an that's the thing where I'd like prefer to go back to the book yes. than the movie if we're agreed. gonna do a deep dive on Brett Easton Ellis. Absolutely um, agreed. Absolutely. Yeah, less than zero. It, it, the, the other funny thing about, about Less Than Zero, just quickly, sorry to cut you off, was that like you go back and you see it now and some of the images too. It's also like an LA that's like, it's an LA that's gone. Forget about like whether or not you're in the right 
social strata. It's very clean. It's it's green, Mm -hmm. very green. And there's not that, you know, it's not as crowded. And so it doesn't have like it's got that 80s L.A. vibe when it was like everybody wanted to come to L.A. And, you know, it's had a few moments, but I think post pandemic, it's I don't know. Is it coming back? I don't think it'll ever be back like that. It's certainly not going to be that green because I I mean, you know, it's supposed to be raining behind me right now, but I don't hear it. The L.A. particularly is a a city that doesn't like embrace its past. Mm -hmm. They like knock down buildings and they knock down things and rebuild on top of it. So I'd be very, and I think that's true in a lot of Southern California because there's all this great Palm Springs sequence in the movie I don't think half of those things are still there. Yeah, it's funny you should say that because we've got filming location specs. So at the very, in the opening of the movie, there's like a flashback. It's a black and white flashback where Andrew McCarthy is talking to Jamie Gertz and trying to get her to go to college with him. And she's like, I'm not going to go to college. I'm going to stay here. I'm afraid, la la la. And that is actually at 26940 Malibu Cove Colony, which get ready for this is on the market for for 21 million (laughs) dollars that's good to know i mean not surprised good to know (laughs) yes that's 21 million five hundred and eighty five thousand dollars actually blair's house which i love the the aerial shot of her which i guess is her dad's house is her father's house in its 110 stone canyon is on the market for $14 million. God, I was just in Stone Canyon. That's so funny. That's exciting. And then Clay's house or Clay's parents' house is 2138 Mickle Torina. Mitchell Torina. Mitchell Torina. Mitchell Torina Street. Silver Lake. And that is $11 million. But it's good news if you have $2 million because Rip's house is 8424 Grandview Drive. And that's only $2 million. Oh, nice. <laughs> that's cool. I'm going to go back and look at these locations. Cause I mean, like it's like hilarious. Yeah. And the bar, the very first bar that they go to where they're all partying is the canal club on Pacific. I'm not sure if it's still there when they do the interior shots of all the, of the clubs in the beginning, it's actually the park Plaza hotel and the high school that they graduate for from at the very beginning is actually St. Mary's college. All those places are on, are, are on Zillow. <laughs> The magic of movies, man. The magic of movies. Like, I mean, it's the best. You can you can convince anybody of anything with a good production designer. So I've always wanted to go back to LA and look at all the, the filming locations, but apparently somebody else on the internet did it anyway and took pictures. So Oh really? I, That's hilarious. So I could just I mean, enjoy I'm gonna go it. look at I'm gonna go look at this. I'm gonna go look at the silver top tomorrow. That's pretty sure. awesome. Because okay, that was in like Galaxy Quest too. I feel like I feel like Tim Allen lived there in Galaxy Quest. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. I might be yeah. wrong. I don't know, but I mean, I, yeah, yeah, okay. But now, I'm, okay, now it all makes sense. That's why it's eleven million dollars. Yeah, I was thinking about it. I'm like, oh, all wow. right, man. I'll look around, man. Eleven million. I just gotta sell a couple more scripts. I'll be there. I well, I want to live in. I want to live in Rip's house and sit in the jacuzzi and overlook that overlooks. Oh yeah, everything. yeah, yeah. yeah. I know, but see, like, this is the thing. And, like, my wife would always say this, too, which is hilarious, which is, like, you know, if you live in the Hollywood Hills, like, the upkeep on those houses is crazy because the ground is constantly shifting. It's the ground. Okay. I mean, listen, again, these are apocalyptic times we're living in. And and here in L.A., it's literally been 100 degrees for virtually not without a break for 10 days. And now we're supposedly getting torrential downpours from a hurricane from Baja. And then there's going to be mudslides. 
So it's all happening here. The real like this is, but this is like a low budge day after tomorrow so far. But we'll see. <laughs> it's we'll the apocalypse. See. All right. So should we should we dive into some BTS? Yeah, let's do some BTS. Some behind the scenes. All right. So obviously we've talked about it. it's based in name and character only on the Brett Easton Ellis novel. He originally <laughs> absolutely despised this film. I hated it. Felt that the only characters that were correctly casted were the J- were James Spader and Robert Downey Jr. Now he feels that the movie is gorgeous to look at and that he appreciates it for what it is, not comparing it to his source material. Yeah, because he's made some fucking bad movies. Like, has anybody seen The Canyons? Like, it's like, oh, you the know. Canyons. Respect, respect oh my the Canyons! Oh, process, Brett. Respect, respect the process. I mean, oh not, I mean, again, I, 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 you know what? I should go to movie jail for disparaging The Canyons. You cannot... You know, it's all about the process. Just the just the just the mere fact of making a movie is what you get credit is for. Is that is that the is that the one with James Dean where he plays the psychopath? Yeah, and Laura Lindsay Lohan. Lindsay Lohan and and that that's a weird ass movie, man. Yeah, I, totally. And but, but you know, I like you know, I like the Brett has come around cuz I mean it, again, it is a very beautiful movie to look at. It, it's mm-hmm. a really it's a I highly, you know, again, to listeners, it is like seriously elevated after school special. <laughs> Stress on the word elevated, elevated. Merrick Kanievska suggested that Robert Downey Jr. And, and Andrew McCarthy actually go out and party to do research for the movie. And it ended up in Robert Downey Jr. howling at the moon and getting put in jail for the night. McCarthy had to bail him out. Robert Downey Jr. considers this movie his, one of his, obviously he says it is his prophecy, but he also considers it to be one of his all-time favorites of his that he has done. Yeah, he's, uh, everything he does in this movie, there's not a false moment and he's Mm-mm. great and sad. I mean, it's worth it alone. Just if, if you're a Robert Downey Jr. fan and especially like people who only know him from the MCU, it's like, you got it. The guy is a genius. He really, there's a reason he, there's a reason he was so great as Iron Man. You got to go back and see how, where it started. Oh, absolutely. There's a lot of little moments in this movie that oddly enough, Keanu Reeves was originally supposed to play Clay. Whoa. <laughs> No way. <laughs> the test screening showed that people disliked Julian's character so much, obviously Robert Downey Jr., that they decided they had to go back and reshoot extra scenes to show that they were friends and to show that there was like a likability quality to him. So they went back and shot the graduation scene and they shot some other stuff like that to make it look like because they wanted him to be more likable. The studio hired Andrew McCarthy because pretty much off of St. Elmo's Fire. And they wanted they wanted him to appeal to a teenage girl audience without alienating the old folks. Great. What a movie to send teenage girls to. Wait, we have to go back to the reshoots. I mean, the, by, by the way, good call on the graduation scene because it's a very good scene for the screenwriting nerds out there. I mean, it really just like <laughs> lays out everything that like everyone's relationship in a few shots. However, bad screenwriting notes is that why would he be likable? Because every time, every scene with him and Andrew McCarthy in it, something wacky happens to remind <laughs> us that maybe he's doing too many drugs because he almost he's a falls junkie. out of a, I mean, he almost falls out of a car, which is yeah. bizarre. He's like sitting on the roof of the car, and, and, it, and it's a quick shot to Andrew McCarthy's face where he's like, "Whoa!" Yeah, he's like, "Well, something's something's up here." And okay. he was like scared, and then you know Jamie Gertz overdoes it because she's like, "Julian." God. And you're like, okay, calm, you're like, calm down. It's just a wild Saturday night. And then later, but then the other two times he sees him, 
he's always like the scenes are so short they don't really go very deep it's like hey man how are you because he's and he's by the way dumb opening he's found him sleeping on a jetty on the beach and he's, he's like I'm, I'm okay man i'm okay man i'm just enjoying like, the sunset who, drinking you a dro- beer. who drove you did <laughs> what <laughs> i mean talk about like stuff we loved about this movie which is pretty much the next thing anyway the stuff i don't love about this movie is I really do think that Andrew McCarthy was miscast, but I don't know who would have been a good clay from that generation. He looks great. He's I mean, great. He's I mean, a, yeah, he's. he's I mean, it's funny. It's like, I mean, I, you know, I don't. I mean, again, to me, I'm always like McCarthy did a funny podcast with Rob Lowe, and they were talking about like the three big movies that McCarthy's known that he's that he's known for, where his fans hit him up. Like, you know, one of them is Pretty in Pink. Yeah, Pretty in Pink, and Weekend at Bernie's. Oh, yeah, Weekend of Bernie's. And Weekend of Bernie's, you know, the, 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 there's another one. But this is not a movie he's known for. Mannequin. Mannequin. <laughs> but he's kind of like perfect in this because he's such a cipher. I mean, it's like he, I mean, he's, I get what you're saying. He's miscast. But like, yes, you like, again, I'm just repeating what you're saying. So I'm an idiot. But I'm just like, oh, yeah, he's like a cipher. And he, but who else could do it? Because all this guy does other than like wake up naked in the beginning and be like come, i don't want to come back you're coming home for christmas i don't know blah 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 you know and then he's just like he doesn't do anything really the only the only time he's like he, he gets into a fight with james spader that's it and it's the lamest fight ever it's really sad i don't the that's another that would be another thing on my list of like what i understand that they had to put it in there i mean andrew mccarthy looks like he couldn't fight his way out of a wet paper bag in this well, not even just that but the character itself is not very active it's not no active no at he's... all like everything happens to him it's like his girlfriend tells him that they need help but he's like all he ever tells her is like come back with me let's get out of here right and then with robert Downey jr he comes and then he's like hey dad i need to borrow some money but that doesn't go anywhere and then mm-hmm. Daddy jr runs out with jewelry my actual favorite scene is the scene by the pool the the scene where robert Downey jr is basically looking into christmas dinner with andrew mccarthy and and their weird blonde-headed brood and he's just staring from this spot on the pool and his face is he's sweaty he hasn't showered and whenever he's got crusted vomit on him. <laughs> I mean, it is a, he is, he is just foul at this point. And yes, yes, yes. yes. And the cinematography in this scene is so amazing because it's bathed in this absolutely gorgeous blue light with like little bits of green and like little bits of purple and Andrew McCarthy comes out and he says look RDJ says I I need money he's like I need money he's like how much do you need he's like 50k 50 and change and he's like well I I don't have that I don't know if I can get that much and and one of the things that really struck me about this scene just being someone who's a recovering drug addict is where he says what what happens when you pay he's like do you start over and Robert Downey Jr is like I don't know I just need the money. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Also, I know. But also, there's also a great moment where he says, like, drug debt. What do you think it is? Yeah, exactly. And, he goes, what do you need uh, it for? He's like, drug debt. And then, by the way, like, by the way, you have to bring it all the way back. Like, this is also when Thomas Newman's score really yes. hits you. And you forget. Oh, my God. It's and you just... forget for a second. You forget for a second all of, like, the rock music. By the way, some very wonderful songs. Absolutely. But, but then but... you're suddenly like, oh, my God. No. You're like, oh, a couple but... moments in this movie with it. The, the Thomas, score. when the Thomas Newman score kicks in, it is so heartbreaking. It's like you have this combination of these, this blue light 
and it turns Andrew McCarthy's got a tear in his eye because he knows things have gone completely south. Jamie Gertz is knocking on the glass to try to figure out what the fuck's going on. Are you they know, friends again? <laughs> which was really weird. I don't know. Yeah, I know. I was like, what are you, what are you interrupting them for? And it, then- it, it's also, I just realized such a weird juxtaposition because this is like right after he and Jamie Gertz have had like sex. In Crazy the, sex in the garden. And like, yeah. And like, no, which is one of, no, like one of those weird like alleyways that are in every LA house where you put your garbage. Is that what that is? That is exactly what that is. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Every LA house has like a weird walkway. It's not really your driveway. It's sort of where your trash cans go. I'm pretty sure where that's where that went. That's down. where that was. Okay. Oh, interesting. And and set to David Lee Roth's bump and grind. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh, nice. That's hilarious. <laughs> Poor Robert Downey Jr. shows up looking for money. Like, yeah, looking terrible. That's right. Because they come in with like freshly fucked smiling oh like, yeah doing his tie and everyone's like he 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 we pulled one over on these right. annoying parents they're not able daughter. to like talk to their their parents are asking them questions and they're like what? he says nothing by the way the best part of this is like he Andrew McCarthy barely says anything to his dad and when he finally comes to his dad he's like yo dad hook it up I need about 50k right. He's like, he's like, I need to borrow some dough. Those are his words. I need to borrow some dough. How much? Oh, do you really? Need? Oh, 50, wow. You're really asking me for $50,000? Yes, I am. <laughs> and then it goes nowhere. That's the thing, though. That that scene is like, did he say yes? Yeah, because then it, Robert Downey Jr. runs away. And then there's this little bit of levity when he goes into what I believe is Andrew McCarthy's mother's room. Andrew McCarthy's little sister, Jenny. She's sitting at like a makeup table with jewelry and she's trying on the jewelry. And, and Robert Downey Jr. comes up to her. He says, you don't call and you don't write. It pains me to accuse, but are you freezing me out? And she's like, yes. Why are girls so cold? You could tell she breaks. She sort of starts to giggle. And then he looks and now she laughs. There's a glimpse that you see of his future comedic performances right there. Just this well, like everything. It also makes me and again, it also really makes me wonder like having had what I still consider one of my greatest artistic, my own accomplishments of a pilot that I wrote and created with Tom Waits that'll never see the light of day. It also makes me wonder where did they screen that movie to get such bad test score. On my own thing, which had a very famous tour director make the pilot, they took that show and tested it to the worst place. There's no way anybody was ever going to, no one ever would have watched it even even if it had gotten to series. Downey Jr. is so likable in this movie. There are scenes where he's not likable, but that's not one. And he's nice and he's funny. And, you know, he's also funny in that weird club, which you mentioned, which I think you said was on Pacific. And he's like talking to girls. He's like, yeah, hit me up. And like he's not sleazy. He's yeah, got, like, no. Eye wrapped around his head. He's like, have you guys ever heard of the Panic Club? And they're like, no. yeah. And he's, he's like, are you from Reseda? Yeah. And you also feel bad for him. You know, he go. He's got his wacky uncle. He gets to like, you know, deal Who, gets he, thing. Yeah, he Who like does come with the guy's like, for money, bump? right? Because the, the uncle's like, I'm going to invest in your club, and then he then literally goes, Do you want a bump? Yep. He goes, My office. Let's go. Yeah. So, there's my office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of these people that are enabling him in different ways. I, I mean, whether it's there's an emotional enablement, there's and and Rip has one of the best lines in the hot tub. I mean, I the range, but again, like the range of James Spader, because he came out when he was in what three, at least three movies in '87. Mm-hmm. Pretty in Pink, Mannequin. He's in Mannequin. Oh, he is. He's the bad guy in Mannequin. He is. 
Yes, he's the store manager. Wow, I don't remember that. He was also in Wall Street. He plays a nice lawyer in Wall Street. He's great in Wall Street. He's like, you know, we suspend our operations, bud. With a true Hollywood bad boy, Charlie Sheen. Yeah, what a year. I mean, what an actor. And he was, I mean, like he played variations of like awful douche. I mean, in Pretty in Pink <laughs> and, in, and, in, and in Less Than Zero. But like, what a career. We got to get him on this podcast. Oh. Spader. Let's talk, Spader, Spader. Let's talk. Spader, let's talk, if you're listening. Spader, let's talk about how. We love you. Yeah. Please. <laughs> Spader, take me through your process in 1987 and the experience on each of these movies. Okay, so now I have a question for you as a writer. Have you, you? I'm assuming you read Bright, Bright Lights, Big City, right? Oh, big time. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. And then I've seen the movie and I know the movie was like Marty McFly doing cocaine and it was just, but was that close to the source? Well, for material? years, I mean, look, for years, and this and this still exists today. Like, I mean, Bright Lights, Big City is, I've been compared to Tad Allagash for a long time in my life where, <laughs> you know, like I like it's not, it's not unknown for like one of my bestest, dearest friends, Kat. My friend Kat, she's always text me and be like, we always share the Tad Allagash quote about how like, no matter where he was, there was always somewhere else he wanted to be. <laughs> fear that it was like, for fear that it was a better, someone was having a better time. A better time. Yeah. I hated the movie. Okay, great. That's good. I don't feel bad for hating it because I was like, I don't, this isn't, it seems like the book would be better. I mean, look, this is important and I'll get excoriated by, I know you have a guest who I pod with occasionally and he'll make fun of me a lot for what I'm about to say and I'll deserve it, but I'll take it. And I won't spoil his, his, his upcoming appearance for your listeners. But a guy I know really well, you'll be fucking go crazy if you heard me what I'm about to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. When I say, I got to qualify my hatred these days, but when I say I hate Bright Lights, Big City, the, the book means a lot to me. I love, 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 love the book. Even though, again, it's like I read it and I was a truly a different person when I read it some 20 plus years ago. I was, I, I believed that I was never going to leave New York City and I would never go to Los Angeles and that is all totally changed. And I, you know, I just made a movie in New York a year ago and I couldn't wait to get the hell out of there and get back to LA. And, you know, so my 20 year old self would kill my 40 year old self. But when I say I hated something, I admire, I admire the process. <laughs> I, I like the amount of work that everybody put into it. And I can't, I'm not disparaging the work. I just, the movie just didn't totally work. The work. Right now, your future guest has a pain in his side. And he doesn't know why. But <laughs> He will soon. Because you said you, because you said you admire the process. Yes. The process. I'm all about the process. I, I, I will not, I cannot denigrate the process. It's hard for me to like, just be like, oh, that sucks. Or that's terrible. I just, I can't talk like that. I feel because I feel like, you know, a, a, a showrunner on a TV show I worked on a very, very <laughs> short lived disastrous TV show on ABC that sank like the Titanic. It was so bad. And it was my first job as a paid writer, as a staff writer. And the showrunner on that show said, years later, he he had a hit show and I wrote him an email and I was like, hey, congratulations on the show. I, you know, it's great, great job. And he was like, wrote me back and he said, he had said variations of this in the writer's room too on that show. And he said, you know, oh, thank you so much. Because usually success in Hollywood is an excuse for everyone to line up and tell you how much you suck. And I, had, I really took that to heart. 
I would feel shitty if, you know, somebody saw something that I wrote or had spent a lot of time doing and they were like, that's a fucking piece of shit. Oh, I'm okay. It's okay for me to say it. I say it about my stuff all the time. Ah, fuck, I, I can't give you back 60 minutes of your life, so don't watch it. Yeah, but anyway, that's, you know, that's, a, that's a, you know, we're, we, we got way off top. But James one of the, really will take you down some rabbit he holes. Did, he did. We just went completely. But one of the things that he says is, I am not the problem Julian is. You know, and he says that's a great yeah, it's, and it's a great, that. I remember that line. It's a great line. I it is. Who's paying the heating bill on that hot tub is what I want to know. There's a lot of people who online have actually said that James Spader's long game is not the drug running, so to speak. It's the male prostitution and that his Probably. long game is getting people addicted so that they will be indebted to him and therefore have to work as whores in really uncomfortable motel situations where michael bowen has to take them from house to house like he's santa claus like he's, that's right that's right remember because well, he's like we've how, got two more stops to make. let's talk about how now we can talk about how this is elevated after school and how prescient this movie is because some 20 odd years later in sicario 2 day of the sodaldo josh brolin tells matthew modine he goes look these guys aren't interested in it's not they're not making money on drugs they're making money on people so maybe james spader is the cartel leader in sicario maybe rip is the cartel leader because we never know what happens to rip nope. and we know that he we know he survived andrew mccarthy's slap oh so yeah maybe, oh lord yeah maybe, he, he, went, maybe a... he went on to like to to like traffic muslim suicide bombers into america in day of the Sodaldo. <laughs> so it is the long game the long game is long game rip, Rip realizes that look, you know what? I can go 50k. This guy can go 50k in debt on the drugs because I'm gonna I'm gonna turn him out. Right. It's that's it. A- it's the money's in people, man. It's not in the drugs. It's in people. My boyfriend had never seen this movie, and and we watched it, and he loved it. And but one of the things that we we were both like, oh my god, was the, was definitely the scene where he takes him to the motel, and because before he takes him to the motel, James Spader is is presenting this con basically. And he's just like, yeah, he's like, I just, I just want you to meet some people. The the last third of this movie takes a turn and you're just so (laughs) unprepared for it. And I think back when I think about the last third of the movie where he's also like heating up, he's got like a butane torch and the pipe. Where the hell were my parents? Like I was eight or nine when I first saw this movie. Like what was going on in the Scott household that no one, no one came downstairs and was like, what are you, what what are you you watching? watching? Like, oh what's God. going on? Oh, and nothing. I don't know. They're my, he's gonna pay off his debt. I don't know how though. Yeah, it's, it's so depressing. That hotel could never have possibly existed in Palm Springs. It's too yeah, high. You know what? It's not in the filming list where the guy went, you know, place to place or My money is I'm gonna go back and watch it. I'm gonna watch this movie tonight. And I, my money is on that hotel is the one in it from In the Line of Fire and True Lies. It's in downtown oh. LA. It's a Westin. The glass uh, elevator. It's yeah, not the, the, it's, it's not the Bonaventure, is it? I think it's the Westin. It could be the Westin Bonaventure. Okay, because yeah, I know all about we spoke about that on our Midnight Madness episode. <laughs> Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah big fans hilarious. of the Bonaventure Hotel. <laughs> yeah. Bonav- Weston Bonaventure, man. I feel like this movie, it truly captures the life cycle of a rich kid addict. The avoidance of responsibility. There really are no consequences to your actions other than homelessness. And then it, things start to just, he bargains himself down more and more and more and more and more until it goes into male prostitution, jewelry stealing. <laughs> 
there's a gun well, it goes at one dark. point. Listen, get get gets dark, but for again, for sure that was the appeal for me in high school because I went oh, to yeah. private school. I Absolutely. went to private school in the Upper East Side of Manhattan, and you're like, oh shit, rich kid yeah. drug life. I mean, because Downey Jr.'s house is the nicest one in that movie. Like they catch him in like the gym. Oh yeah, he goes early in the gym on, and then they, the CDs. Yeah, and then his dad is then he, then he goes to his dad on the tennis court because the dad's like, "I want you out of here," so you know that his house is sick, massive, <laughs> really a massive house. Right, and that's right because in the graduation scene, the dad is actually proud of him because clearly he was a screw up in high school, mm-hmm. and the dad's like, "I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. I'm gonna stake you that money." The parents kind of suck in this movie. Like as far as like, obviously his dad is doing kind of the best that he possibly can having this junky son, but like Jamie Gertz's dad won't even come to the door. She goes to bring him his present. And oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. That girlfriend yeah, yeah. answers the door, like opens the bedroom door, closes it. She's wearing like a shirt and nothing else, which by the way, she is Dave Coulier's ex-wife. Just a fun fact there. That's Jane Modine from a spring break. So she comes out and I noticed that she wipes the corner of her mouth. The relationships with the kids and the parents, I feel like is the most faithful to the book. Oh, really? Okay. That's interesting. That and they didn't, okay. have, they didn't have the budget. They spent all their money on the silver top, right? The film at the silver top residence. So they were like, <laughs> can't afford any more. We can't afford any more actors. That's it. To play these parents. So that's all we got. Let's spend it. Let's spend it on the houses. I feel like that element of it is the least after school special and the most like the book. I feel like once it ends and it, and it ends with Robert Downey Jr. dying in the middle of Palm Springs, yeah, that so is such a depressing scene. When did he get the drugs? And then I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> he goes to Rip and says, I'm done using. I'm done dealing. I'm not going to work for you. I'm going back into rehab. My dad's going to help me. Oh, by the way, I don't have your money, but I'm here to tell Um, you. (laughs) Right. And that's when the guy pulls out the blowtorch. He pulls out the blowtorch because he goes, I can't do this. I really can't do this tonight. Please don't make me do this. And James Bader goes, oh, I think you'd be surprised at what you can do. And then he like puts the pipe in front of his mouth and that's it. Game on, my friend. They have a fight at an art show. Yes. Because there's a party in Palm Springs where everyone dresses in tuxes, Marquis party in, in Palm Springs. So they're all decided to drive out to the spring and they ask the group of coked out girls. They say, do you guys know where Rip is? Rip has a suite oh, and right. they're where at Royal Palms or something. Palm Springs is a destination and Palm Springs is even more popular now than I think it was in the 80s. Oh, really? Okay, that's interesting. Very, very, very popular. Do you believe that there are just certain people that can have these like crazy dark nights of the soul and then they're done using and then they never use again? And then there's people like, say, I don't know, me or Robert Downey Jr. who use once and they're like, that was terrible. I want to do it again. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I'm a hedonist, but I've always been like, I've been blessed with, I'm lucky I literally like was at a fucking bonkers wedding over the weekend and was carrying on like a wild banshee. But then on literally on Monday, I've I've started like a month long detox. Amazing. So like detox cleanse detox sounds like I'm drying out. I'm no, (laughs) right. No, no. cleanse. uh, Yes. (laughs) It's the one of those things you do in LA. The only thing, the only thing I'm like, I could say I'm addicted to that's making this detox particularly hard is like, I can't have coffee for a month. So that's something why I, I think why it's something I actually love about Lesson Zero, because I do think it's a pretty honest depiction of certainly what you said at best, which was 
there is an element of like rich kid addiction but he goes he falls pretty hard i mean they, they let him go pretty hard i mean the male like like turning him out as a male prostitute is pretty ugly his rock bottom just keeps getting lower and lower and lower the, the, the scene time. where he goes through his detox in in jamie gertz's loft is a very gut-wrenching explicit scene but it's also very true to life if you've ever detoxed or if you've ever gone through withdrawals it is absolutely like having the worst fucking flu in your life and then just wanting to kill yourself you know <laughs> I mean, it's kind of interesting because the way she treats it in the morning, like she looks at her, she's like, are you okay? He's like, whatever it takes, I'll sell my car. You know, I mean, he'll do, he'll do anything he can to save his friend. And is it to save his friend? Cause there's also this element of like, he's like really trying to get Jamie Gertz to come back to it. To he wants East. her to come back. He absolutely wants her to come back. And they have like, you know, we, we mentioned like, you know, things we love about this movie, but like one of them is like, I like all the sex scenes in this movie. I like the fact that like they, make out in the middle of the road with their, there's like a bunch of bikers and they're just kind of speeding by and there's all these yeah lights. yeah totally totally like on the yeah i think yeah and, I, and the thomas newman score once again yeah, yeah, yeah totally <laughs> i gotta go back and see where they film that because i know that one's up in malibu somewhere mm-hmm. i'm probably canon doom road because that tunnel's still there and then they have obviously the sex scene in the weird alleyway behind his rich house right, where the garbage where the where usual the garbage, garbage, where garbage where garbage just where the garbage cans usually are in oh LA. that's so creepy um, and then there's like sort of like a like a half hand job situation in that really nice car because like you cut because he's she's doing she's doing that to him and then he's like hang on a second and then, like, he's, he like she, flips okay. a donut there's a, lot, you, there's a lot of these little wacky little moments that you picked i'm definitely gonna go back and watch yeah this they, they, then they're having sex in their in her loft and she's wearing like this like she's wearing like this black leather jacket that's draped over her shoulders again again we go 1987 what a year for the movies and for (laughs) these particular stars because jamie gertz did did lost boys that year. lost boys absolutely she was like i I, you know what that's probably why i watched less than zero because she was in it because lost i was obsessed i was obsessed with lost boys yeah i mean i think my thing was in general it was like oh you know oh andrew mccarthy's in this oh this will be interesting kind of to watch and honestly i might go crap I'm going to go out on a limb here because and less than zero certainly 1987 like might be one of the greatest years for movies ever agreed absolutely agreed one of the criticisms of this film from Siskel and Ebert was that they felt that the drug abuse was too too in your face and too prevalent I that's mean, the point of this movie by the way this movie had a better effect on anything fucking Nancy Reagan was doing in oh absolutely I mean it was like all this propaganda look it's a very good anti-drug movie there's no question about it this was so much fun dude this was I know I loved it please have me back I had yes, so much fun. absolutely I had so much fun. we got I, like, yeah. I, I could literally as you could probably tell I can I can talk about movies forever and ever fantastic yeah we'll totally jack's back absolutely (laughs) i will figure out a way to make that shit work this has been so awesome thank you so much for giving us your time nick no thank you for having me aaron thank you so much